My guest today is the founder and CEO of Tenbound. Here's what some of his colleagues and his clients have said about him. He was an inspirational leader for our sales development team. Before he joined, morale was very low and the program was drifting. He was like a breath of fresh air and it was amazing to watch him work. His work ethic is off the charts and he genuinely cares about the success, not only of the company, but of each individual in the organization. He is a passionate leader. During his time with us, he's built an SDR organization that was exceptional, both in terms of the people he coached also related to the technology and the processes that he created. Here's another one. He is a rare breed of sales leader. He truly cares about the personnel and professional development of his people. David pioneered the SDR program at Glassdoor and was instrumental in us hitting our sales goals. Final one. He was one of the most impressive and professional individuals I've ever come across. His ability to listen, suggest appropriate solutions and adapt to change and thrive on pressure distinguishes him from his peers. David Delaney, you're very welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Wow. <laughs> I got I to gotta get those people a check in the mail for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so look, tell me a little bit, David. People don't know who you are. Uh, maybe just give us a, the, the quick 50,000 foot view of who you are. And then what I'd like to do is I'd like to kind of go back a few years and find out who the, who the young David was. Yes, <laughs> me too. Uh, so I uh, sold sales training for about seven years with a company called Achieve Global, which was eventually put into Miller Hyman. And now I think it's part of Corn Ferry. And, uh, you know, it was a great experience Le learning sales training from the bottom up and something that you're passionate about as well. Um, and, and, you know, that was really the basis of my career, but I had always wanted to get into the tech industry. And so, you know, here in, in the Silicon Valley, you know, you can't, <laughs> you can't go anywhere without hearing about the tech industry. Right. So I got into Glassdoor actually um, as one of their first sales reps and that was right around the time that um, predictable revenue came out and a lot of tech companies were starting their SDR team. And so we actually started the SDR team at Glassdoor. And, um, you know, I started to run these teams and, and work on the process. And eventually, uh, back in 2016, we started Tenbound, which is a consultancy that helps with the SDR program, process, training, etc. And I've uh, been doing that ever since. Okay. I, I want to talk to you about the whole predictable revenue concept. Yeah. Um, I, 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 I have my concerns often about it. I'm not 100% convinced and I have reasons, but I could be completely wrong. And I'd love to talk to you about your experience of that. But before we do that, yeah. tell me a little bit where you grew up and what that was like. Yeah, um, I mean, it was idyllic, really. I, I, I was extremely lucky. I, I grew up in the East Bay here in San Francisco, out in the suburbs. And, um, you know, two great parents and uh, great opportunities. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it really looking back, it was absolutely, I mean, now, now that I've been around for a while and I realized like it was, it was an amazing um, childhood and I was really lucky. And, um, you know, I, I went on to, you know, blow it as much as I possibly could, right? Like we all do, because you got to learn. 
but uh, definitely my, my memories are just, you know, great experiences as a, as a kid. When you say bloat, what, what exactly do you mean by that? Well, you know, um, you have to find your own identity. And I think wisdom, wisdom is uh, making mistakes, learning and, you know, <laughs> learning and not to do those again. So, um, you know, one, one thing is uh, just I, I was sort of an adventurous person and, and I, I, I still am, but I've totally mellowed out. <laughs> and uh, after, you know, during college and after college, I did the backpacker thing for several years and just went a little bit crazy. And this is, this is back, you know, before technology and a long time ago, right? And um, went around the world, lived abroad for a while and did all that um, before, you know, coming back to the Bay. Tell me then about, because I'm, I'm, I always love the idea of people when they're young were the backpacking idea and then traveling the world. Tell me a little bit about your most memorable experience from the backpacking. And, and maybe venture into the, the hairiest experience. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, so in, in college, I got really into the Grateful Dead. They were actually still around uh, back in those days. They, they, I, I think they're still going now. I mean, this is a long time ago, right? And um, I, it was just wild, crazy times on the road watching them. I went to a lot of their concerts and just got really into that whole, that whole era. Um, I went to Santa Cruz, uh, UC Santa Cruz, which was like a big uh, center for, for that, um, that uh, alternative you know, lifestyle that was happening. So it was just really, it was awesome. But I, I definitely was looking for something, you know, beyond that. And, and I had been, I had been um, you know, just based around the Bay Area and traveling, you know, in, in the States. And um, I just remember sort of walking through the halls uh, back then, and it was, it was right as the internet was coming up. So we still had billboards. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if you remember those. And there was just a little card that said, um, you know, teach English abroad, right? And um, just being completely lost and, you know, having zero direction whatsoever. I remember, you know, taking the little phone number off the card and uh, calling, calling it. And I ended up uh, in in um, Japan, Thailand, Laos. Um, wow. And then I actually went through Europe for a while and I, I visited Ireland and um, Kilkenny County where apparently- you know, Kilkenny. It's, yeah, yeah. That's I'm where saying, I'm from. Yes, oh, is that right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I had to, like, my name's Delaney and we were talking about yeah. this, but it's, um, I, I definitely felt like I had to, you know, come and, check it out because it's uh, apparently where we're from. So, yeah. 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 I yep. think Kenny kind of Waterford was a, there was a lot of Norman settlers there back a few wow. hundred years ago. And that's where you get often get those concatenated French names like Delaney um, yep. from interesting. All right. Was, I, hope we treated, awesome. I hope we treated you well when you were here. But yes. You know, I, I liked, I loved, I loved it. I mean, the, the, um, you know, I went, I went down, I, I went further south at, through that trip and I ended up in the south part of France and I like the weather there a lot better. So that's the only thing if, if um, I've never heard anybody ever complain about Irish weather before. Never. <laughs> yeah. Well, I live in Daly City, which is just south of San Francisco and it's just foggy like 
all the time so i'm i'm used to it but yeah well, I, I have to tell you a very quick story about that and i know george will listen to this we have a mutual friend george and george was over near ireland for a year and we worked together and uh george kept telling me someday paul you're gonna have to come to san francisco someday you're gonna have to come to san francisco and i said someday george i'll, I'll get there it was one of the places i'd never been to in the states and he said i said I, I remember having a couple of dreams about driving across the golden gate bridge i don't know why it was in my mind and he said paul he says i used to jog across it i only lived just up the road we'll take you to the golden gate bridge so my moment comes it yes. was for my 50th birthday i i was going to yosemite to take not i wasn't backpacking i was there to take photographs and i said we'll go to san francisco and i'll go to see george and so george takes me all around and shows me all the different neighborhoods and it's fantastic and as you know he's a wonderful host and uh, we went to drive across the golden gate bridge and we drove across it i saw nothing nothing not even like you could barely see the ropes just barely see the ropes sticking up to yeah. so much fog across it so i have driven across the golden gate bridge but i've still never seen it i've seen that and it's funny because everybody comes to visit us and it's like we're kind of sunny california right so you go out on those days on the golden gate bridge and everyone's in t-shirts and shorts and all i can think of being in sales for so long is the the fleece you know manufacturers must be making a fortune right now on both sides of the bridge because everyone's buying yeah so bring bring your bring your own sweater if you come and visit I will, us. I will. come here tell me you said you saw something interesting that caught my attention you said you were uh, in, in school and you talked about the billboards and you said yeah. you're, you're you were lost no you you said two great parents and it's not an uncommon story sometimes they're kind of a uh an upbringing that's uneventful in itself can lead people to kind of not know where they exist in the world. Sometimes mm. the most sheltered, protective, wonderful upbringing. And I'm, I'm curious to know if you were back again, or perhaps maybe if you were head of the education service in the States and you could change anything about the curriculum that might give people a greater sense of purpose or direction in their life, what would that be? Oh, geez. <laughs> That's a really good question. I, I, I think there's there's kind of two sides to it. There's nature and nurture, right? And and it's my my nature, I think, is just as a um, of like more of a visionary type of artistic person. Uh, and and uh, I mean, it's kind of a negative type, but a day, daydreamer type. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm just coming up with things and it, it, it's taken me years and years to add the sort of a, um, an infrastructure to that. And, and, and that's one thing about being in the corporate world for a long time. I mean, you, you have to get organized. You have to hit deadlines. You have to, especially in sales, right? It, or else you get fired. So it's taken me a long time to learn that. But I think just my nature, um, you know, it, it got to the point where, I, I was independent and ready to be on my own and and it was time for to, to expand you know my suburban you know um, mind frame and I, I don't know if there's really anything that the education uh, people could have done differently I mean they, they they're I look at the education as you know they're giving you like the basic building blocks to yeah. be able to survive in our society 
Um, and the system, sorry to cut across you, I'm just curious because I'm very similar myself. And I'm just wondering, does the system, is the system set up to kind of fail people who are creative, artistic in nature? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I think, um, you know, if you look at the education system, it's a kind of a remnant of when we worked at factories and, and it's, yeah. it's, it's set up to prepare people for a world that doesn't really exist yeah. anymore because you, you don't, you know, my dad um, worked for the same company for decades and got a gold watch and, you know, he, he came up in that that hierarchical, like, I don't know how to say it, society, right? Where you learn, you know, things and then you come up through the ranks and we just don't, that doesn't exist anymore. So it, it's, um, it, you know, as long as you get the basic building blocks and you realize when you come out of school that you're on your own these days. I mean, you know, we live in a completely flat, interconnected world that's not a factory uh, set up anymore and you're on your own, you know, and you got to figure it out of, you know, what contribution that you can make um, and and what you like to do and what's going to get you excited. And, um, you know, for a lot of people, they just get lost in that. Um, they, there's too many choices. There's even even back then, I mean, you know, decades ago, there were too many choices for me. I was like, I, I don't know what I want to do. You know, and and I'm just like trying to figure it out and and to be happy. And it, it takes years and years, you know, if you're if you don't just wake up one day and you're like, I'm going to do this and, you know, be successful. So, yeah, somebody one of the testimonials I read about you said that you had a crazy work ethic. That's what they noticed. And I'm curious to know what gives you that. Where does it come from? Yeah, I mean, I think that that came from, you know, my parents and the the way that I saw, uh, you know, people, uh, you know, as I was growing up. And it was just it's just sort of an ingrained thing that in order to be successful or, you know, get anything, really, you've got to work your face off. <laughs> I mean, and it, it's it's um, and that's that, you know, this is interesting because I, I think um I never thought twice about that. And, and I think that was just sort of programmed. Um, it's, it's definitely not a natural, you know, thing. I'd rather, you know, sit on the couch and, and read, you know, um, my phone all day or something like that. But I think it's just a natural ingrained thing that, that I, I saw and now I do. Um, and yeah, so. Does it come from a place of fear of missing out or fear of failure or is it more driven by a sense of desire to achieve something yeah i i think it's more the maybe the catholic guilt i don't know i was raised a catholic and um i, I think it's more of a protestant thing of the protestant work ethic but um you know that that you have to be busy you have to be doing something you have to be making a contribution or I, I definitely feel like it comes from the the the, the negative side where if, if I feel like if I'm idle, you know, um, that that there's something deeply wrong, <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and I'm going to get in trouble. And it's like at this yeah. point, who's, who's going <laughs> to the only trouble that I'm going to get in is, you know, if I can't make payroll or something like that. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, you said a moment ago that uh, in order to be successful, you have to work your face off. 
Uh, how would you define success? Um, yeah, you know, I, I think that it's a it it's a personal you know definition that you have to come up with yourself. For me, I would say you know being able to um, show up you know for my family and be engaged you know as a dad and a husband mm-hmm. and a son um, and uh, and you know being able to have the time to do what I want to do during the day, spend time with people that I want to spend time with and work on projects that I'm interested in mm. and, 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 you know, achieve that freedom, um, which I didn't have, you know, for years and years, you know, when I was working for somebody else. Um, yeah. So for me, that's success. And, you know, for money, it's, it's like, if, if there's enough, you know, to cover everything and, and there's enough, you know, month and year ahead that I can stay free, um, then I'm super happy. And and one other thing is your health. I mean, you know, your health is everything. And if I can have enough time to be able to, you know, eat right and sleep and exercise, um, that is a big success, you know, to have that time. Um, So, yeah. Um, yes, something I wanted to ask you about, it's gone straight out of my head now. Um, oh, I know what it was, was you're not, you're not, you're a different person today. The day from the one that you described as maybe a little bit lost, picked up this card saying English teachers wanted English as a foreign language and heading off is give some sense of an experience that you would have had either in your personal or professional life that caused you to kind of change your worldview that has led you to be who you are today? Yeah, it's, it's funny. Um, Zig Ziglar, <laughs> which probably nobody, well, unless you're kind of over 40, you probably don't know who that is. But um, I, I literally, um, you know, I, I, I became very interested in, in business and, and, um, and I picked up The Economist, which was another huge thing. <laughs> Somebody in you know, one of these countries I was living had a big stack of Economist. And I became fascinated with business and, and you know, especially international business. And I stumbled across a tape, which probably nobody knows what that is, um, in my Walkman, <laughs> listening to Zig Ziglar. And Zig Ziglar was talking about setting goals and... Um, you know, achieving success and, you know, all, all the sales, all the different things that, that he's an expert in. And um, it just resonated with me. And I, I think what happened is it, it, it gave me um, that structure that I had to come on my own to find um, through, you know, traveling and doing crazy things. I, I sort of had to find it on my own um, versus you know, having my parents tell me what it is all the way through to, for 18 years. And yeah. you had to go through, it's it's kind of like the, the prodigal son. There's all these different analogies, you know, biblical analogies and whatnot of going out into the wilderness, um, finding, finding, you know, all the ups and downs that comes with that adventure and then settling into something. Um, and, and so it, long story short, I, I became sort of this self-improvement addict. I mean, I, I would say Zig Ziglar, Brian Tracy, Tony Robbins, like just 
super deep on all those 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 guys. And um, and then I came back to San Francisco and I was like, I'm going to put on, you know, a tie and a suit and go slay the dragons of commerce. Um, and it was just boom. And, you know, yeah. Of those, you mentioned a number of people who were insp inspirational for you and motivated you some way. Yeah. Do you have a personal favorite? And if so, why? Yeah, I mean, well, I think it depends on the stage you are in, in, in your journey, for sure. So right now, it's a guy named Dan Sullivan, um, who runs an organization called Strategic Coach. Um, and, uh, you know, he he's, uh, I, I would say, one of the top business philosophers, you know, in, in, in my experience. And, I, and like I said, I've listened to a gazillion of these things. Um, he's, he's amazing. And he focuses more on setting up a bootstrapped entrepreneurial company and all the ups and downs that comes with this adventure that I'm on right now. So that's why he really resonates. But I, I would say if you're thinking of starting a company or you're running a company, uh, Dan Sullivan is, is yeah. an amazing There's a few colleagues of mine in the U.S. swear by strategic coach and... Mm -hmm owe their success to to their membership of of the programs for sure yeah. so i i can't say I, I know too much about the guy myself other than cursory glance um i said i wanted to come back to you on the whole predictive revenue thing in terms of the model of setup how you particularly for inside sales and let me ask you first of all are you a fan of that kind of structure and if so why well, you know, I, it's funny. I, I'm sort of structure agnostic um, in that I, I say that the the end result that we're going for in B2B sales, especially B2B enterprise sales, is pipeline and sales, you know, revenue or, or bookings, however you want to call it. So we're trying to drive a predictable sales pipeline for the you know, 3X, 4X, so that we can go into the quarter and make sure that we're closing enough deals to make our number, right? And so let's just take all the structure off the table and try to figure out what is the best way to do that for your particular business. And, and a, lot of, a lot of companies look at it from a different angle where it's like, we, we, don't, we don't know, so let's put in the, the SDR AE model and, and you know, graft that onto our structure and see how it works. You know, and for some, it's great, and others, it fails miserably. So yeah, I, I'm all, from a model point of view, I get it, and I know a lot of people listening to this would, at some stage in their life, in an SDR, it is the most difficult sales job there is. There's no question about it, and so I can see that the the the, the model benefits of separating out the the tasks. And I've seen organizations treat it as an academy for people coming in. I see it as a way of delivering a number to the organization or delivering pipeline to the organization. My concern always is that it can also be used, particularly upstream AEs upwards, as an excuse not to do their own prospecting and a way of getting from it. And I think that goes back to an experience I had years ago when I was working for a startup company back in 2000. And I was the first full-time salesperson they hired and it was more of a primer so you had to find your own. I was only like there was only 82 companies they're all network operators like Verizon and AT&T but all in EMEA that we were targeting 
and then the company got a new CEO and they went on a spree of hiring what was termed as the big guns salespeople. Now, I probably took that as a little bit of a slight. <laughs> so maybe that's where my, where, where my uh, issues <laughs> come <Yes>. from. <laughs> and, but what I noticed was this. So I remember when there was a couple of these guys joined the organization and we were going to a big uh, exhibition in, in Cannes, big 3GSM, so massive thing for the telecoms industry. And we had this small booth uh, or kiosk and I remember you'd have people go by targets and they'd have badges and they'd say like it wouldn't be Verizon we don't have them in the U but but uh, those kind of companies and you'd see it and I'd watch them go by and I'd see them go for a coffee and I'd go follow them and I'd sidle up beside them and say oh I see you're from Telia my name is Paul and I would do that and I saw these big guns these big hitters that they that were going to rescue the company and take it to the next level stand watch people go by I remember quizzing them and they said, well, we're closers. Yeah. And that's how they identify themselves. In other words, it was like, we don't do that prospecting stuff. That's, that's beneath us. And so I always had a little bit of a contempt for people who saw themselves beneath prospecting or, or, or offloaded it because they, they weren't gutsy enough to do it. Yeah. And so I, I often, I, I, I fear sometimes people use it as an excuse rather than set it up as a model because it's for all the right reasons. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that you're shooting yourself in the foot, you know, as a sales lead, as a salesperson in any level, if you're not constantly prospecting, you know, I mean, I, I think that um, you're letting you're letting external factors, you know, control your pipeline and you're waiting around and, you know, I mean, pointing fingers and making excuses is the worst possible thing that you can do in any facet, not only just as a sales professional, but in your life. Right. I mean, yeah. that's just ridiculous. So if you're lucky enough, you know, to have an SDR team that's supporting you, then help them out and, and work with them and, and try to bring them up, you know, as best that you can. Mm. But, but uh, never use them as an excuse. I, I, that's what I, I would say for sure. Um, so tell, tell me that in terms of what you're doing to these days, yeah. what gives you the greatest sense of accomplishment? Oh, you know, it's, that's interesting. I, I think that, um, you know, in the first few years of running the company, it was just anything that we could do to keep the lights on and be able to pay my bills. I, I had been in the corporate world for so long that I had, the first thing that we did when we started just the consultancy was set up payroll for me. And so I was like, I gotta like get, go out and get money. Right. And, and, um, you know, so so learned learned a lot about you know just hustling, and it was it was you know just keeping the lights on, mm. and then um, it, I realized that that the most important thing, at least for for our business, is um, as Jeff Bezos, um, you know, love him or hate him, he preaches it's customer obsession. It's mm. just being being absolutely obsessed with the with the success of your customers and and that just takes care of absolutely everything else um your marketing your you know your sales obviously and stuff like that and your product design and everything so so um now i i i think that that the more that i can figure out how do we you know 
uh, provide value as a service, basically. They can get rid of us at any time, but if we're providing a ton of value, they love working with 10 bound, they're super happy, and we're doing everything that we promised, that I'm just thrilled, you know, yeah. <laughs> like on a personal and professional basis. Yeah. I don't think people understand or sense how difficult it is, particularly when you're starting out with a, where there's no brand recognition and you're selling a service that's essentially you, you're the product, right? Yeah. And so it, it, there's head trash for you. How much am I worth? And oh God. Also, I know you've had to have experienced it, and I'm curious to know how, because you said you sold for a cheap, you sold for a cheap global. You're selling training, and training similar in that you're, well, if you're like me and you're you're the trainer, then you're selling yourself. How much am I worth? And people are not looking at the content. They're not looking at your processes. Do they believe you? And I'm curious because I have never sold training for another company. So I'm curious to know how you would contrast the, what it felt like to be selling somebody else's IP versus selling your own. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's funny because, because at first when I started this, it was just people that I had worked with in the past and, and they, they would come and say, Hey, we, we've got this, SDR team and they're struggling or they, they need some help. We just lost the manager. Like, can you just come in and, you know, do your thing that you did at those other companies? And I, I go, yeah. sure, you know, so that, that was, that was as far as business development, it was just like, well, I already worked with you. You're a known commodity. Come on in and write a playbook and do some training, you know, fine, yeah. no problem. But what, what, what really the real differentiator was when strangers you know, I would approach them or they would approach me and they had no idea who I was. I'd never heard of 10 bound. And it was like, whoa, you know, I, I, I have no, no credibility with this person whatsoever. And I just remember some of those first sales calls were just absolute. I just got shredded. You know, I mean, they, they just destroyed me because they're like, huh? You know, so that was an interesting experience. I can't remember what you asked, but I just thought. <laughs> yeah, well, I was. Asking, <laughs> that's fair. I, I was really asking what, was, what memories. You shared with me yeah. half the answer, as in what it feels like to sell when you're the product, and you're but you're selling something that isn't tangible. It's a concept. It's yeah. It's uh, what does consulting even mean? Where I'm going to come in and fix your problems? Says who? Right. Well, selling sales training is, is similar as in we're going to solve these problems, but your ego is not attached. You're not the product when you're selling it, somebody else's training. And so it was really just to get a sense of your sense of the contrast between now that you're both selling conceptual products, but this time you're the product. So therefore there's an ego attachment to that. And does that feel different? Yeah, it's interesting because from day one, I, I didn't want to go the guru route. Um, yeah. And I, I, I don't even, I, you know, I don't even know if I could have, right? Because I, I, I just, I had a good reputation in Silicon Valley when it comes to sales development, but nobody knew who I was outside of that. So that would have been a lot of struggle too. So I never wanted to make it like David Delaney Incorporated, right? So from day one, it was 10 bound, you know, the brand. And, and then, 
you know, so the next question was, what, what does Tenbound have? Like there, there at first, you know, there was no product there. It was just me, you know, going from company to company, writing playbooks and stuff like that. So eventually we developed the Tenbound way, you know, and it was a, an integrated system of strategy and tactics to help, you know, sales development teams improve. So now I had something, you know, that was a tangible thing. And, uh, and, and that, that, that made it, I mean, it's easy to sell when it's, you have to sell something or else you're going to die. Right. I mean, like that's, the, that, that's, that makes your motivation go through the roof, Paul. Right. I tell you about it. I've been there. I have been there. That's right. So, not that I'm going to die, but I'm not going to be able to pay the mortgage and there's no other, I had two kids. My wife didn't work outside the home. And yep. I've, I've been that soldier. I know what it's like. That's why I'm, I, I like to kind of hear that articulated in other people as well. It's, it's, yeah. a, it's, it's a strange, it's an experience. I think it's character building, but it's not something I'd ever want to do again. No, yeah, <laughs> no. I mean, I look at like people raising huge amounts of money and stuff like that constantly. I mean, that's all you see here. And, um, and I, I look at that in some ways, it's like, Oh, that'd be so nice to have, you know, a nice cushion in the bank, you know, to be able to do things. But on the flip side, who are you beholden to? Um, I just have no, I, I don't, I have no experience, you know, being in high stress situations like that and, and, and uh, no desire really to have to go in and have a boss anymore. I, I'm done with that, right? Um, so I don't want to be, I don't want to have somebody saying, you know, we gave you a gazillion dollars. Like, what are you doing? Um, and so, but hey, who knows? Maybe, maybe that's the best thing to do. I don't know. <laughs> no, I, 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 it's yeah, it is. It's it's it is one of those things where you sip with the devil because there's advantages in it, and it will give you, you know, when it works out, it works out well. But uh, yeah. there's a lot of people who've regretted that too. So it's. Uh, mm. I, you you talked there ten bound working with SDR teams, and you mentioned you know people would bring you in when okay my terms not you when i said the team is broken when, when it's not working or operating on, on all six cylinders what i'd like to understand is what are the typical reasons why sdr teams don't operate as they should or are or, or, or operate at their at their best yeah it's it's so there's so many different things i mean one that you kind of touched on is um is this the right fit as far as the company and the market and the the way that the sales team is structured and and all that for the SDR model, right? Um, and is 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 this even right to do right now at your company, um, or is there a different way to build pipeline that might make more sense? And that that's like an existential crisis that that is b bigger a lot of times than we are able to figure out. But it's something to think about. Um, if it, if is this the right model, you know, for your company? So number the next one is if you're determined, we're we're doing the SDR thing and and um, it has had success and we just need to kind of get it on track. Then it comes down to the big three, you know, things that everybody talks about, which is the people, the process, or the technology. Um, and one of those or two of those or three of those is misaligned or, or broken. And we, we need to start addressing those. Um, and so that's usually where, where we start. Mm. 
I, I would have thought that if the process is broken, that's also a people issue because somebody created that process or didn't fix it when they should have. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, a lot of times that a lot of times that's the that's the black hole when we go in and look at the SDR team. Um, that no, there's either there's a haphazard process or like a Rube Goldberg machine. You know, I don't know if you know what those are. Um, the, the, just you could Google it, but it's just a bunch of stuff put together with duct tape and baling wire and chewing gum. Um, and, and, and the process is not as efficient as it should be. And, and it could have been that somebody was kind of working on it, but then they left the company and, and nobody's kind of worked on it. And, you know, for example, we could see we go in and sometimes, you know, there's there's inbound lead, you know, queue that's just going into something that's not being checked on by anybody. And, and what happened was the guy who set up that process, uh, uh, you know, didn't tell anybody, left the company. And now there's nobody and there's like, you know, some good leads in there. I mean, that's just one thing that you could mm -hmm. discover from a process perspective. Yeah. So it's a people problem, a process problem, or a technology problem. Um, yeah. So when you're in, when you're when you're in there, they've already recognised that there's a problem. Otherwise, you wouldn't be there. Tell yeah. me about what kind of resistance you can run into that may prevent you from helping them achieve their their goals. Yeah, I mean, so there's <laughs> there's a lot. I mean, nobody wants to hear that. The consultants are coming. I mean, I, I right. I'm from the '80s, and like that means that everyone's getting fired, yeah. um, except for the the top executives. So nobody likes to hear that. So the the first, and what we did, Paul, is is you know, we had a bunch of point solutions. So we would say, oh, we'll come in, we'll write a playbook, we'll work with your manager, we'll you know train your team, and it was just a bunch of stuff. So we just sort of put it all into a fractional SDR manager. And, and we now we just work with the CMO or the VP of sales and, and we just say, you, you know what, just offload your SDR situation to us. We have a team of experts and we'll make sure that we get it back on track. And they're just like, fine, here. So <laughs> you go in, when you say a fractional, I presume you go in yeah. as the de, de facto manager in there. Yeah, we pretty much just take it over and and uh, run it until they hire someone. We can actually help them, you know, find people and stuff. So, and we've got um, four different people and a project manager who runs that, and uh, we just come in and do it for them. Um, so, and, and so, you know, to your question, I mean, the first piece of resistance is like, who is this person? <laughs> you know, you know, it's it. Do I have a new boss? Is this mm. a consultant? I, I don't understand, you know, where we're at. And some people are very open to it and they realize we're here to help. I mean, we're, we're you know, trying to be yeah. in the background and support you to get this. Yeah. So how do you address those concerns? I think you've partly done it by saying we're here to help, but. I would imagine there's a, it's a little bit more evolved than, than just we're here to help. How do you help people get comfortable and get on board with what you're trying to achieve? Yeah, and, and so I think it's, it's uh, the attitude that we have is that we're, we're here to make you successful. That's, that's the main um, you know, message that we're putting out throughout the whole implementation from from the, the leader that brings us in to the middle manager and the SDRs, 
you know, that we work with, we, we don't want to be the star of the thing. We're, we're just the, the, the support service to make sure that we're building pipeline and we're making more sales, right? Mm. And, and, you know, and so specifically, it's just reinforcing that message every time we have a team meeting, every time we have a, a one-to-one, every time we do coaching, any of that stuff, um, mm. we, we really want to make that clear. Yeah. yeah. Talk to me then a little bit about maybe some of the myths or things that just are patently not true about your industry that you'd like to address or correct in people. Yeah, I mean, you know, the one thing that sticks out is there's a lot of ageism, you know, in in Silicon Valley, especially. I mean, and it's it's the one ism that nobody is talking about yet, but I'm sure it'll come soon. Tell me about it. <laughs> I've had those comments already. Pale male yeah, and stale. <laughs> it's especially in the SDR world, you know, because the real, you know, the, you look at the SDRs and some people call them BDRs and LDRs. There's a lot of different acronyms so for your listeners they, they might have different acronyms but the SDR stereotype is it's it's kind of like me like we were talking about it's somebody who they were a liberal arts major and they're kind of lost and they're looking to get into the corporate world and so you know it's either that or join a cult <laughs> yeah <laughs> it's one of those or become a backpacker and yeah 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 um, so they want to get into the corporate world. So we'll get them in, you know, and we'll have them, you know, do the job that kind of nobody else wants to do. You know, I'm sorry for laughing. I'm just thinking when you talk about a liberal arts major, I'm thinking about somebody. <laughs> yeah, basically, what you're saying is people have made bad choices about college. Yes, you're there serious, for them. A series <laughs> of bad choices, but they're they're young and you know impressionable, and yeah. we can bring them into the fold. And, you know, and, and so the, and the reason I bring that up is, is that, that we like the hiring process really looks for that, that entry level person, which is a bummer because, you know, there's a lot of people out there who are stay at home moms or they're career changers or they're sales people who don't want to travel anymore. And they could be great SDRs, but they don't get a chance because um, you know, there's this stereotype of, uh, you know, even yeah. I, I hear it from people all the time. It's like this, um, I'm looking at a resume and this person's been an SDR for three years and they go, well, why are they still an SDR? And, um, I'm like, maybe they like being an SDR. I mean, yeah. is it too, is yeah. it too much to think about that there could yeah. be somebody who wants to be an SDR for the rest of their life? You know, I mean, by the way, you, you, you've hit on something. It's probably I'm the only one who cares about it, right? Maybe nobody listening gives a damn about it. It's the no. ageism thing. And it's not something I would have even noticed 20 years ago. But here's where I've noticed it. Uh, the number of times I would put out, I would script, record, edit and publish a video on a topic. And I put it on LinkedIn. And I've done many of those. Or maybe it's like this kind of a podcast where certainly... I would work on the production values and I've had, I mean, several comments from my, a lot of my own colleagues in, in Sandler and they'll look at a video and go, great video, Paul, did, did your son help you with that? Automatically assume that it, <laughs> it wasn't me. 
that yeah. I didn't know how to set up a camera and whatever. And that's, that's where you see it. It's that kind of, what do they call it, unconscious bias. But I don't think anybody ever sees that applying, in, except in very narrow domains where apparently it's widespread. But they don't see it in other places because only the individual in that space actually notices it. Nobody else notices that. And just the assumption is that if you're of a certain age, you know nothing about technology despite the fact I wrote software for a living. Um, sorry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> now who's on the couch? I'm just getting this out here. I need, I need closure in my life on this. <laughs> um, but, but there is that sense of obsessed. automatic assumption that if you're a certain age that you don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I'm kind of in between, but certainly anybody maybe 10 years older that Oh, we need to provide services that are not online because people of a certain age wouldn't know how to access those services. Yeah. And I, I, it's patronizing at best. And, uh, but it's just a, this automatic thing. And I think that comes into the, we also make the opposite mistake. We assume because somebody's young that they're going to be particularly good at something. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the reality is somewhere in between, you know, in terms of where you settle, because I do know this and I have a particular person in mind. She's a neighbor of ours and she works. Her title's not SDR, but that's what she's, she's calling people up on the phone day in, day out, and she is brilliant and she has no cares about who she calls. She's seen it all, done it all. And she's brilliant. She would be an asset in any company, but she's my age. Nobody would hire her as a VDR or an SDR, not a chance. You know, it gets down like, with with the with the uh, what type of frameworks should we use and is it predictable revenue yada 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 I mean we're trying to we're trying to build pipeline right mm-hmm. sales pipeline and I don't care you know how you know if it's somebody who is working from home or you know has experience or something like that um, that you know that 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 business result is what we're trying to get to so I think I think David I think we have just solves the problem for all SDR teams. Mm-hmm. And here's what I'm thinking it is, that every SDR team, we should get a granny or granddad, so, but somebody who's good on the phone, who's not afraid of the phone, but just need one of them, like a shark, you know the shark of the tank analogy. You yeah. put them in there and everybody else is gonna see them and see them as the, the totem pole in terms of, I, I, you know, that's the granny, that's the granddad. And they're doing better than me. Like, take that that in, in in that bias and leverage it to create a a, a motivation amongst teams. You never know. Big time. I, I I completely agree. And we're also you know asking people who are new to the uh, business world to call people that have twenty years of experience. And and um, you know they, they can. It's a struggle. So if you know, there's a lot of different ways to deal with yeah. it. If you've got this uh, new junior team, you've got to be able to just look at reality that you're asking them to call on people that have 10 to 20 experience in the industry. Every so how- time, every time I hear this, and, and, and understand you're, you're, but you're 100 percent right. Yeah. I remember my first job out of college, and I went to college a little bit late. I kind of left school and then went back. So I was probably 23 years of age, and I w- it was software, programming software. And I was there a couple of weeks, and it was Friday afternoon, and everybody just got up, and they were 
marching behind me out the door into this room. I didn't know where they were going. And I'm, I'm new there, so I'm not jumping up. I didn't know. My boss says to me, come on, Paul, are you coming? I said, where are we going? Uh, it's a team meeting. I had never been to a meeting in my life. Mm-hmm. I worked for a couple of years in the civil service. They don't have team meetings. And then I went to college. There's no team meetings. This was my first time in a job. I felt, I felt like a grown-up. I felt like an adult for the first time ever. Mm-hmm. I was excited by just being invited to a boring meeting. And now, now we expect somebody at that age to pick up the phone and call somebody senior in our organization and have a peer-level conversation with them about their business and that they're going to challenge them about their business. Mm-hmm. It's, it's nonsense in the extreme. It's naive. I don't want to say nonsense. That's probably unfair. It's certainly naive that that's ever going to happen. And I think that there's a that, that SDRs, BDRs contribute enormously to organisations, but I think our expectations of what they can achieve is is too high. And I think if you if you want people at the, at the front of your organisation to have those senior level organ- conversations, then you have to have somebody who's you know has worn the t-shirt. That's my belief. Anyway. Yeah. Be and that, that's, that's one thing. I mean, the, the, a lot of companies don't train them at all. So that, that's something that we see a lot where they're just, here's how to use, you know, these very powerful tools that are out there. And I'm sure if you look at your inbox, you're getting all these emails, you know, autom- automated tools. They sit them down in front of all these tools and give them really good contact information you know, from the, the data vendors, the, the technology is usually not a problem, but it's the training to be able to have business acumen and the, the skills to be able to have conversations is essentially missing, yeah. uh, and, you know? And so, yeah, and I, yeah. so I, and I, I, there's, I talked to a guy um, a couple of days ago who was just, let's just get rid of all SDRs. You know, like, like they're, they're because of all the problems, you know, that we're talking about. But my question always comes back that um, if you don't have any pipeline or you don't have enough pipeline and you, you, you don't have enough inbound leads, then who's going to do it? I mean, who's going to go out and knock on the doors and make the calls because the senior sales reps, as you said, they want to close deals. I mean, they're and, and the, if they're if the senior sales rep is working on this, you know, deal that's going to bring in you know hundreds of thousands of dollars. Do you really want them to be sitting there, you know, going yeah. through lists and calling people? So it, it's, it's complicated. Yeah, it is. And, and I think training companies have a role to play here as well, and have a responsibility because, again, I don't want to come across as ageist. I mean, I'm only giving my own experience of how naive I was. But at the same time, Michael Dell at 24 had founded Dell. So I think that's what age he was. And you look at the likes of Bill Gates and these and what they'd done at at the same age because they had gone out and gotten the experience, the direct experience. And I think what training companies really need to be doing is not talking, you know, up to PowerPoint slides and saying, here's a model, here's, here's a process, but really simulating business experiences so that people can come up that curve really quickly. And they're, they're put into what, what a friend of mine calls meaningful ex- failure experiences where they're gonna learn the business acumen quickly. And I just don't see companies do that. I mean, maybe you have examples of ones that do. I certainly have not seen it. No, I mean, there's, I mean, there's all those stats that used to say, you know, as soon as you walk out the door of a training program, you, you lose, 
you know, a huge percentage of the learning. It's great stuff, but, um, you know, something like starting a business, for example, I mean, you learn by making mistakes, making problems, just getting your ass kicked on a daily basis for years until you finally realize that um, the, the and, and this just came to me recently. So I'm not some guru or anything, but the problems are actually good things. And, and if you can flip your mind to look at problems as something that's good, then your life becomes a lot easier because it's just an endless series of problems that you have to, you know, yeah. un unwind and, and, you know, bringing it all the way back. If you're new to your career and you're an SDR, just realize that get as uncomfortable as possible, as much as possible. Um, and get out of your comfort zone, completely humiliate yourself, make mistakes. Don't you know, ever work for a recruitment company, David. <laughs> stay within the law, of course. Don't yeah, get invested. Yeah. Come join us. Get your ass kicked day in, day out. Get torn to shreds. Yes. <laughs> what will pay you. And, and, and you will grow as a sales professional, yeah. I promise you. <laughs> Yeah, it is true. It is true. And I think that's why people who succeed at the SDR, BDR role do make good AEs. And I think it's an important part of earning your stripes. And yeah. it, it's also a good filter, mechani filter mechanism as well that if, if, you, if it's not for you, you'll find out pretty soon. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, and that, that's one thing that's good about the whole SDR structure is it creates a talent pipeline as well. So it's not just sales pipeline. There's also the talent pipeline for the company and like Salesforce and LinkedIn and the big, you know, tech companies, they, they constantly bringing in these huge classes of SDRs. Oracle does this too. Yep. Right. And, and, and then, you know, they see who's going to make it and who doesn't and who's an exceptional individual and, you know, all that mm -hmm. stuff. And it helps build the company. So, you know, that's another aspect. Mm. We are up on time, David. I don't know where that, literally, I've, so, I've really enjoyed our conversation. Time has flown by. I'm just one final question and I'm going 90 degrees here. So prepare for this one already. We're not talking about SDRs anymore. Um, when your time on this planet is done, how would you like to be remembered? Oh, man. I mean, you know, it, it fades so quickly. So for the temporary time that anybody's thinking about me, it was, you know, he was a good dad. He was a good husband. He was a good father. And he did his best to, to provide and make a difference, you know, to help um, the community and, you know, the all that good stuff. I, I hope that they would think of me in a positive light. Well, I can see why George thinks you're a top man. And I want to thank you so much for being generous with your time today and joining me on the podcast. Uh, David Delaney has been my co David Delaney, CEO and founder of Tenbound, has been my guest on the podcast today.